Well, friends, we are in the book of Malachi, so you can try to find it. Yeah, we put the page number. That'll make it easy for you if you have your own Bible. Uh, you can turn there as well. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. We began uh, our look at it last week. We, we remind ourselves this is a relatively short little book of about 55 verses, uh, four chapters located right at the end of our Bibles, written roughly around the year 400, 425 B.C. And it's the last recorded words of our Father, uh, of God, uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, until the coming of John the Baptist, the prophet, in the new. We've learned a few things here uh, that, unlike the closest contemporaries to Malachi, which were Haggai uh, and Zechariah, what we learned is this book isn't so much a book of encouragement as those books were meant to be, but this is a book of confrontation. There was a complacency that had set in and so God raised up a prophet who would speak the word of the Lord to those people. And as I mentioned, there are two sections to this book. There is a section that was addressed to the religious leaders, and then there's a section that is addressed to the people. And I find it interesting that God first addresses the religious leaders, because in so many ways, as the leaders go, so too go the people. And the people had grown complacent, and as you can imagine, so too were the priests. And so the first half of the book, it goes up to chapter 2, verse 10, which is, I think, where we'll end up stopping today. We have that address to the priest. The latter half of the book will be to the people. Now, you remember a few things, other things about the book is that, that unique style where God, knowing what the people are thinking or knowing what the people have said out loud or even just to themselves or somewhere in privacy, where God begins to confront them. And he says, you say this. He says, I, I have loved you, but you say, how have you loved us? Or uh, you are saying this, but, but that. He will continue to confront them. And he'll do that seven times. The first one was in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, I've loved you, but you say how? How have you loved us? Chapter uh, 1, verse 7. He, or verse 6 or so. He challenges them for receiving polluted offerings. You've been receiving like defiled offerings and presenting that to me. And their response is, how have we presented defiled offerings? They, they just have this attitude of heart that is unwilling to accept what God is trying uh, to speak to them about. And so they keep rebelling against that and pushing back against that. Instead of humbling themselves before God, they instead, they sought to justify themselves before God. And every time they did, they drifted further and further and further away from him. And as I think about that, I'm reminded of the Apostle John's words. In the first letter of John, you, it's a familiar verse. You probably have, or possibly have even memorized it. But it says in 1 John chapter 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we love that verse. Because we love this idea that if I confess my sins to God, he'll cleanse me. But I want to focus on the opening phrase there, if we confess our sins. That word confess there, it could be translated, and it, it means to acknowledge. If we acknowledge our sins, and what that implies is that God already knows. 
that God's bringing a conviction, that God is tweaking our hearts a bit, and we say, you know what, God, you're right. We agree with him. Well, that's what was going on here in the book of Malachi. God was bringing a conviction, but the people were refusing to acknowledge it. God was saying these things to them. He was putting his finger on an area of their lives, but they were refusing to say, you know what, God, you're right. And so he said, you're bringing polluted offerings to me. And instead of them saying, God, you know, you're right. They instead say, what are you talking about? When did we bring polluted offerings to you? They refused to acknowledge what God's Holy Spirit was doing. And so it is very, very important for us to tune into what the Holy Spirit is trying to speak to us in our lives. God brings conviction. And he still does bring conviction in our lives. I'm hoping you're experiencing that on a regular basis. The reason? Because none of us have arrived. None of us have gotten to that place where we're perfect, we got it all figured out, and God no longer needs to convict. What I've discovered in my life is I kind of go through these seasons where God says, you know what, today, this week, month, however long it takes you, Greg, we're going to work on this. And he begins to deal with an area of my life. And he begins to bring conviction. And there's this internal struggle that I'm wrestling with that. And then I kind of come to this place where I'm like, you know what? You're right, Lord. That is an area of sin. That is a hard attitude that doesn't bring you pleasure. That is an area that you want to see put out of my life. And then we kind of deal with that. And I get, you know, some success in that area. And he's like, you're doing great. I said, oh, thanks, Lord. He says, I wanted to talk to you about another area. And then we start working on the next area, and we deal with that. But it, he brings that conviction. If you're not receiving any conviction in your life, that should be concerning to you. That should imply that there's a hardness that has set in that, you know, that little pinprick can't get through. You know those calluses you have on your hands? You could shove a pin into those calluses. It don't hurt anymore. I don't know if you have any. But if you do, it doesn't hurt anymore. Find a sensitive area, you're going to feel it. And so if you're not feeling it, you have to be a little concerned. Has my heart been hardened over by sin? And so we, we want God's Holy Spirit to speak to us. And then when he does, we want to acknowledge uh, that as the case, we agree with you, God. We say things like, you know what, you are right, Lord. I have had a bad attitude toward my husband or my wife and have been responding inappropriately. God, you know what? You are right. I have been disobeying that clear area of Scripture. God, you are right. You can fill in the blank. You know. You agree. We agree with him. And so here in the book of Malachi, they were not doing that. Instead of saying, you know what, God, you are right, they were saying, you know what, God, you're wrong. They actually call him out later in the book for being wrong on this subject. You're mistaken. My goodness. Well, as we come to chapter 2, again, we're addressing the priest. We have here the strongest rebuke against these priests, really, in the book. And remember, the people were bringing the polluted offerings, but it was the priests that were accepting them. It was the priests that were going before God and offering them on the behalf of the people. It was the priests that were doing those things. It was the priests that were not teaching the people what was expected of them and even holding them to any sort of standard. And so it's the priest that the Lord addresses. Verse 1 says, And now, O priest, 
This command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in all of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, but you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So in the previous chapter, he has recounted the sins of the priest. Here now, as he begins chapter 2, he solemnly warns those priests of the judgment that will come if they don't repent, if they don't turn, if they don't stop the way that they have been leading the people, and that is one of compromise. So he calls them to repentance, not just to be sorry for their sins, but to sorrow in such a way that it leads to a change of direction, that it leads to a change of behavior, that they begin to do something different. To borrow from the apostle, you're sorry you got caught, not because of what you did. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, because the reality is with worldly sorrow is often, if you didn't get caught, you'd probably still be doing the same thing all along, because you don't really think it's wrong you're just sorry you got called doing it. But what godly sorrow or grief is, it's a type of remorse that impacts the heart. And it impacts the heart in such a way that it causes a person to grieve the fact that they participated in that sin at all. So maybe they didn't even get caught. But their heart is broken over the fact that they even participated in that area of sin. They have now been convinced that their action was wrong and something they should have never been involved with to begin with. And this is what the Lord, through Malachi, is calling these priests to, to acknowledge their sin and then to turn from that sin. God, in his mercy, he is giving them an opportunity to repent. But as the rest of this opening set of verses goes on to show, as God in his mercy is giving them an opportunity to repent, they should not conclude that he's perpetually going to offer that opportunity to them. That a judgment will come if they ignore the word of Malachi, the word of the Lord through Malachi. There will be that time if they refuse to repent that he will bring his judgment. And he talks about that. You can see that in verses 1 through 3. Two in particular, he says, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. I've already cursed them. I'll continue to do it, is what he says. If you do not lay it to heart, I'll rebuke your offerings. And he, he goes on from there. Now, 
What I appreciate about the next set of verses is he gives them an example. Someone that they can look at and say, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I desire to see in you. He gives them an example. And that example is the tribe of Levi. You see that there in the next verse or two. Now I'll remind you, you recall that the Jewish people, they were comprised of the 12 tribes of Israel. Each of those 12 tribes, 13 really or so, but each of those, we'll call them the 12 tribes of Israel, were the sons of Jacob. And remember, Jacob had his name changed to Israel. And so you have these 12 sons here. And so you have Reuben, you have Simeon, you have Judah, you have Gad, you have Issachar, you have a whole bunch of them. And, and you know, you can number the 12 and play that game, you know, like on Jeopardy. How many of the tribes can you name? You know, and you can, that'll be fun. One of those tribes was the tribe of Levi, the third son of Jacob. And the tribe of Levi was selected to represent God to the people and the people to God. The tribe of Levi was selected to be the tribe from which the priest of God would come. They would be holy. And by that, what the word holy, it just simply means they would be set apart. The priests wouldn't come from Reuben. They wouldn't come from Gad. They wouldn't come from Issachar. They would come from the tribe of Levi. Now, interesting, that's not always the way it was in the Old Testament. Initially, the Jewish people were to set apart the firstborn son to be a priest of God. Not, it didn't matter if you were from Judah or Issachar or whatever. It was the firstborn son. Exodus chapter 13 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. And so that firstborn son was supposed to be the priest initially. And then God instituted a change in which he determined it would be of the tribe of Levi. And it, it's associated with Exodus chapter 32. Now, Exodus 32, you may not recognize that address, but you do probably know the account once I begin to mention it to you. That's the golden calf incident. That's the story. Exodus, Moses is the central figure. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai. He's there for 40 days up on Mount Sinai. It's, when he comes down, he's going to be bringing with him the Ten Commandments that were given to him by God, the two tablets of stone. As he is up there, the people down on the ground are like, where'd he go? Is he ever coming back? You know what? It's time to move on. We've been waiting here for a month already. This is getting ridiculous. And so they approach Moses's right-hand man, a guy named Aaron, who happened to be Moses's brother, and they begin to tell him, you know what, I don't know what happened to this Moses fella, but we think it's time to move on. And what we think we need is we need a representation of God that can lead us on the rest of this journey. And that representation was to be a golden calf. You remember the ridiculous explanation that Aaron gave? He said, all right, everybody bring me your gold. And he said, they brought me all this gold. I kind of put it in the fire, and out popped that golden calf. And later, Moses was like, are you? But, you know, who's your mother? You know, it was his mom. Uh, anyway, it says this in Exodus 32, 6. It says, now the people, they rose up early the next day. They offered their burnt offerings. They brought their peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and, to, and they rose up to play. Now, here in a... Nice mixed audience. 
you don't want to know what the Hebrew word play means. This, it was nuts what was going on there. I feel like now I have to tell you what it means. You can figure it out, but don't think too much about it. Alrighty? That's what they were doing there. They played in front of this golden calf, this idol that was to represent God. And they even stated, this is the God that brought you up out of Egypt. When in reality, we know that it was the, the Jehovah God, the true God, not some calf that they made with their gold. Exodus 32 goes on, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mount, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. They said, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. And then Moses comes down from the mount, of course, just as they get started in this. He comes down from the mount, and he sees what the people are engaged in, and he freaks, to use our terminology. It says in Exodus 32, 19, as soon as he came near to the camp and he saw the calf and he saw the dancing, Moses' Moses's anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands. The Ten Commandments that God gave him, he broke them on the ground. He threw them down on the ground and he took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire and he ground it to powder and he scattered it on the water and he made the people of Israel to drink it. And then the passage goes on. He calls out his brother. What did they do to you that you would have done, done this? Did they tie you down or something and make you do this sort of thing? What's it, what did you do? So he calls out his brother. Then he, in turn, then he turns his attention. And we don't know how many people they are. There's estimates of anywhere from two and a half million to four million Jews that were coming out of slavery and wandering with Moses to, to head toward the promised land. Millions of people that are out there, at least, that are out there. But Moses now, he dealt with his brother, who was supposed to be leading the people. Then he turns his attention to not the whole crowd, but the rabble-rousers, those that were leading things. And really, I think this, the proper word is there was this potential of a riot that was about to happen there at the foot of Mount Sinai as Moses just destroyed their, their God that they had made. And Moses, he turns his attention to them, and it says, Now when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp, and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered to him. The people that stepped up, they came to Moses' side of this riot. They were talking about killing Moses. We'll throw, who's this guy coming down the mountain doing what he's doing? And it was the people of Levi, the tribe of Levi, that came. All this, And it says in verse 26 there, and all the sons of Levi gathered to him. There had become a corruption of the religious order established by God. I am the Lord your God. Make no... Anybody know what it says? I forget right now. Make no idol. I know it says something like that, but that's not proper translation. Okay. But I'm the Lord your God. Don't make some vain idol to represent me. And so they did. 
And so there was a corruption of the religious order that was established by God. And Moses, in the verse that I just read, he is longing for someone or a group of individuals or people. He's longing for someone that's going to stand up and say, no, that's not the way things are to be done. That's why the Lord references this passage in our Malachi study. Because in the time of Malachi, there was a corruption in the religious order in Malachi's day, just like there was a corruption in the religious order in Moses' day. And we already saw last week that God was longing that somebody would stand up and put a stop to that corrupt religious order that had developed. Look back, chapter 1, verse 10. There it says this. Is the Lord speaking. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Remember, the doors would be like the doors of the temple or the gate of the temple courts. He says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Oh, that there was someone that would rise up and say, No, this is wrong, and it's not going to continue. That's what the tribe of Levi did in Moses' day. And the result was they were rewarded, if you will, by being the priest of God. God presents to the people of Malachi's day, specifically to the priest of Malachi's day, the portrait of a true minister of God. This is the heart I'm looking for, for of a leader, God would say. How he wanted a representative that would live, or how he wanted a representative to live and to minister. Three things in, I see here. He wanted them to stand for truth. He wanted them to lead the people as opposed to having the unbelieving people lead the priest. And then he wanted them to truly care about God and his ways, even as they supposedly ministered to others about God and his ways. He says, oh, that there was someone that would take a stand. Oh, that there was someone like the tribe of Levi a thousand years earlier that would take a stand. And so as Exodus 32 tells us, God then made a covenant with Levi. And he references it in our Malachi passage. Look at verse 5. He says, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, I, and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. He goes on, and he explains, so he explains why. So we understand what the tribe of Levi did. But then he goes in and he explains why the tribe of Levi did what they did. He says in verse 5, My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear. And notice, here's part of the why. And he feared me, and he stood in awe of my name. The priest in Malachi's day, they'd stop fearing the Lord. There was no reverential awe for God amongst those priests. That's why they could bring a polluted offering. They knew it was wrong. They knew God wouldn't accept it, but they did it anyway because there was no fear of God. What's God going to do? No reverential awe for him. They did as their own heart desire. We're not specifically told this, but I think it becomes pretty clear. It was clear in, with Aaron is that they rather feared the people more than they feared God. Why didn't the priests of Malachi's day confront the people? Because they were afraid of the people. Why didn't they challenge them? 
is because they were more fearful of them than they were of the God that they were supposed to be serving. And they're called out for it. Malachi gives another example. This is in verse 6. It says, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. Second reason why the priests of Levi were commended is because of their commitment to truth. They were personally committed to the truth of God's word. They weren't turning on the news to find out or reading their magazines to find out what you know, the polling says is now the truth. They were going to God's word and they were holding to the truth of God's word regardless of what the people said, regardless of what the culture was saying. And God commends them for their personal commitment to the truth of his word, both in their leadership and, as you'll see in the next one, in their own personal lives as well. Verse 6 continues to go on, and it says, uh, He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. And so they believed the truth, but so very important, they walked in the truth. And so this wasn't just a head knowledge that they had. This was a heart knowledge that impacted their lives. They weren't hypocrites. They weren't saying one thing, but doing another. They weren't acting one way in this setting, but acting another way in another setting. They lived this out for themselves, and the Lord sees it. The prophet Amos, he said, can two walk together unless they are in agreement? The answer is no. You know, think about like the, the three-legged race you do at a picnic or something like that. And if those two have a different determination of where they're going or even how fast they're going or even with what foot's going to lead and all of that, they're not going to get anywhere. Can two walk together unless they are in agreement? No. And so if God has one standard and you or these priests, have a different one, can you walk together with him? No, somebody needs to change their standard. And I would suggest to you, it's you, and it's me. It's certainly not the Lord. And yet, the people in Malachi, the people expected what they expected, and so the priest walked in the ways of the people as opposed to the ways of God. The true minister of God can walk in peace and uprightness with God because their walk is in harmony with God. Their lives, their personal lives, not just their public lives, but their personal lives are marked by godliness and personal piety. Of course, this doesn't mean they were perfect because none of us are perfect. We all fall short. But what it does do is it rules out hypocrisy. And it rules out that deadness that was in their life, that was present in the lives of those priests of Malachi. So he proves that to them. Then he, give, and then he has given them the example. Now he's going to challenge them again. Look at verse 8. He says, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. They turned aside. And what makes their sin all the more great is as leaders of God's people, they led many others to stumble as well. 
And that's why I think their, their sin is even more significant than the average people that perhaps were living the same way as well, is because they were to be spiritually leading those people. And as they led those people astray, people came with them and followed them. The New Testament author, James, he solemnly tells us this, that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So any of us that teach in any way, Sunday school, moms and dads teaching our kids, you lead a small group study, you preach, we should take these words to heart very, very carefully, that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness, not only because of the impact it has on your own walk, but because of the impact it will have on others that are watching your walk. Now, I, I will say this. I do think we want to be careful with that verse in the book of James. James isn't writing this to dissuade everyone from taking the position of a leader or to take the position of a teacher. I don't think that's his point. If you were smart, you wouldn't teach. I don't think that's what he's trying to say. The Apostle Paul will say in another place, he says that anyone who aspires to the office of an overseer, they, he desires a noble task. Other versions say he desires a good thing. And so I don't think James is trying to say, do yourself a favor. Don't even like, go down that route. I'm, I think what he's trying to say is you need to be really careful if you've gone down that route because the one who teaches will be more strictly judged, if you will. I think James's point, stop playing around with sin, especially a leader. I think James's point is don't be a hypocrite. I think we can be wrong from time to time about this and that, and there's grace for that, but don't be a hypocrite. James calls them out for that. The one who teaches that person's life should line up with what they teach, or at the very least, they should be diligently seeking to have it do so. And so again, whether you're a pastor or an elder or a ministry leader, you teach in a classroom or a small group setting, you're a mom or you're a dad. Take these words to heart. Do you reverence the Lord in holy fear? Are you personally committed to the eternal truth of God's word? And you change your ways, not you change it to comply to your ways. Do you walk with God in peace and righteousness according to his ways? And if the answer, honestly, folks, we're not here to play around, right? I hope you didn't, I just want to feel good message, so my heart is warm today. That's nice. I hope that happens to all of us. But the reality is, come on, let's let the word of God read us. Let's let it speak its truth into our lives, and let's let it challenge us, that we have to deal with it. If the answer to those questions is no, or, well, not as much as it perhaps it should be, if it's something like that, I think today is a wonderful opportunity for us to say, you know what, I want to be able to answer that question, yes, yes. And so let God do a work in your life. Remember that the word confession, acknowledge, agree with God. And if he's putting something on your heart, agree with him. You don't know how everything's going to work itself out, and I don't know how I'm going to walk down this path, you know, if I make it. You don't know. You walk in faith. You say, all right, Lord, I agree with you 
I'm going to turn from that sin. I'm going to go a whole new direction. I don't know how this is going to work itself out. I don't know how I'm ever going to be possible to do this. But in faith, I'm going to go down that avenue. And the Lord will show up. Now, as we come to chat, oh, my goodness. It's, is it 1120? It's about that time. 11, oh, we got lots of time then. Okay. <laughs> dear. As we come to verse 10, this is where it shifts gears. And this is where he moves from the priest and he begins to talk to the people. This is the second section of the book. This is going to be the last words that, the God, that God speaks in the Old Testament era until the coming of John the Baptist. So let's, let's catch him. He says, have we not all one father? This is verse 10. Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and he has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So now we're addressing the people. And we've already seen that one of the things that people were doing was bringing polluted offerings. Now, he called out the priests for accepting them, but it's still a problem on the part of the people, is they were bringing defiled offerings. They were bringing, you know, a, an animal, a cow that was going to die anyway. Well, let's just give that to God then as our offering, or, or whatever it might be. These animals with their various blemishes. That was the first thing. The second thing we are seeing here that the people were doing wrong as verse 11 says, is they were marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, emphasis there on the god part of foreign god, not the foreign part. The Jews were allowed to marry foreign women, as long as those foreign women didn't worship and serve foreign gods. If they converted, if they were a proselyte, think of Ruth, for instance, if they've converted to the faith, then the Jews could marry those foreign women but they could not marry those foreign women if they continued to worship and serve foreign gods. To borrow the, the wording of the Apostle Paul, they were not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? Now, the context of that passage, I don't think just talks about marriage. I think it talks about any of our interactions and business dealings and, and places where we sort of covenant with other people. If you're on a different page with someone else, if you're going in a different direction with someone else, if you have a different motivating factor that guides you and directs you, you're not going to be able to walk that path smoothly. And what, what contract or covenant is more significant than the covenant of marriage? And so Paul tells us there, do not be unequally yoked together. Now, here in Malachi, they weren't working on the Apostle Paul. He wasn't there yet. But they were referring back to the Deuteronomy passage that says this. It says, now, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of, and he clears away many nations before you. He lists a whole bunch of nations, the Hittites, Gargashites, and so on. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, 
and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. The scripture was very clear about it. And they, they had plenty of examples of people that had come before them that ignored that scripture and experienced the consequences of it. The greatest example I think of it, or the largest example of it, was King Solomon, who took all of those foreign wives, and the scripture is very clear, and they led his heart astray, these foreign women. The people of Judah here are just simply ignoring this passage of scripture, this commandment of scripture. Not only that, look at verse 10. It, there it describes their actions as being faithless to one another. Now, we're not told in verse 10 how they were faithless to one another. We could kind of like, well, maybe they were like lying or, or something. But if you go down to verse 14, it tells us how specifically they were being faithless to one another. He says, uh, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, to the wife of your youth. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, they were being faithless to the wife of their youth by divorcing the wife of their youth and taking to themselves some pretty young foreign woman to kind of take her place. And it was rampant throughout the city. The book of Nehemiah makes it very clear that even the priests were doing that. Even the religious leaders were doing that. Let's read that. 13 to 16, so we have the context. It says, now the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from you. But you say, why does he not accept it? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking, godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, he covers his garment with violence, says the Lord. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Stop doing that, he says. No more, I don't think there is a more solemn vow that a person can make with another person than the marriage covenant. And these folks are just tossing it away like it was nothing at all. He says in verse 14, he says, you've been faithless to your companion and your wife by covenant. Now look at verse 13. They're all upset because the offerings that they were bringing to the temple weren't being accepted. So put those two together. They're tossing out the wife of their youth they're replacing her with a pretty young foreign thing. That sounds terrible. Um, but, you know, this pretty young thing, that still sounds terrible. <laughs> then they're going to church, and they're presenting their offerings to God, and they're wondering why God isn't like, oh, you guys are the best, as they come in their minivan with their nice new family. This guy comes in. Of course the Lord couldn't accept their offering. He, he uses the word with favor. Of course he couldn't accept it with favor. In light of their sin, those offerings were an abomination to the Lord. And he says so. 
There was nothing, these were nothing more than gifts that were masking hypocrisy and sin. And God calls them out for that. Last week, we talked a lot about this idea of ritual without relationship. You know, you go through the motions, but your heart is very, very far from God. Here is a supreme example, I think, of that. Now, I do want to talk about, I don't know how we're going to do this. I have three minutes. I want to talk a little bit about marriage and divorce, because certainly it is something that is prevalent in our society. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's folks in here that have been divorced. I, mean, I imagine there's folks in here that are considering getting remarried and things like that. The Bible does speak into these areas. One translation of our Malachi passage says that God hates divorce. The ESV words it a little differently um, than that. But the idea is that it is not the heart of God that we get, that the covenant marriage be broken in divorce. And so I think there's three things that we learn in our study of scripture about marriage and divorce that I think is important if this is not an exhaustive study and we can help direct you and maybe even talk more with you if you have specific questions. But three things. One is who we marry. Very important, who we marry. Two is the covenant of marriage. And then three, that question of, is there ever biblical grounds for the breaking of that covenant? So let me kind of quickly look. Number one, who we marry. I think the scripture is very, very clear that the believer is to only marry another believer. That was established in the Old Testament. Paul reiterates it, as we saw in that passage where he talks about not being unequally yoked together. I think the scripture is very clear, is that a Christian should seek out another Christian when they are looking to get married. Now, I think it goes beyond that, though. And so I don't think it's like one of these things, come with me to this crusade, go ahead, go forward. They go forward, what are we doing? Just get up there. You know, great, you're a Christian now, good. Would you marry me? I don't think that's what we're talking about. We're not just trying to get someone to, you know, to get the card that says, I am a Christian and I attend a church somewhere. You, we want to find someone that is running after God as hard as we are running after God. We want to find a person that we can be equally yoked together with in our pursuit of heaven together, this side of heaven. Does that make sense? So it's not just a, yeah, I think she's a Christian. Or, yeah, you know, he's gone to church before, and he said he'd keep coming. Be careful. Be very, very careful. So that's the first thing. Now, it raises the question, though, what about the situation, and we see this a lot, we have a lot of folks that are coming to faith in Christ as they're a little bit older in life, and they're already married, maybe they already have kids, and they're becoming a Christian, and their husband, their wife, isn't yet a believer. And so now they are technically, I guess you might say, they are unequally yoked. And so should they divorce that person? Should they put them aside to go find a Christian whom they can be equally yoked together with? Maybe, you know, this was a young couple, and they, they were both following the Lord, but one has sort of drifted, become complacent, not so interested. Should the one that is really hunger, hungry after the things of God just put that person aside and say, you know what, I need to find myself someone really committed to the Lord so that I'm not unequally yoked? Well, Paul addresses it. Thank God he does. 
because we could be debating it together. But Paul addresses it and makes it very clear. It's in the same passage that I read earlier about not being unequally yoked. He said this, To the rest I say, I not the Lord. And there's a lot to that. We can talk about it. It's not really that complicated. He says, To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. They are set apart. There's a presence of God working in their life through the believing parent. All right, so anyway, this is the first thing I think this passage draws our attention to, this idea of not being unequally yoked together with an unbelieving spouse before you get married. Find someone that's running after God as hard as you. Second point here I talked about was the issue of the covenant of marriage. And so we see our friend here, Malachi, he's talking about them being faithless, breaking their covenant, just tossing it out, replacing it with something new. We learn a few things. One, marriage is based on covenant. Marriage is based on covenant. I really liked when Patrick and Joy got married last Saturday or so, a couple of Saturdays or so ago, that point that Pastor Will made. He said that this marriage is going to be built now on this covenant that you are making, not on your feelings for one another, because feelings can change. It's based on covenant. Marriage is based on the vow that we take with one another. Again, not based on love, not based on feeling, and certainly we hope they're there. And the feelings and, and the love, we hope it remains. But it's based on the solemn promise that we make to one another before God and before those that are witnessing this. And then thirdly, almost certainly, it raises that question, well, are there ever biblical grounds for divorce? or for dissolving that marriage covenant. I do believe the scripture speaks to this as well. I think the scripture is very clear that there are two instances. One is marital infidelity. That when one party commits adultery on another, that it can do such a damage to that relationship that some people just can't recover from it. And so Jesus said this, he said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, Jesus in Matthew 19 will make it clear that in an instance like that, where one person has been unfaithful to the other, that divorce isn't required he says, Moses permitted it because of the hardness of your hearts. It can do such a damaging work in the part of one of those individuals that they just can't recover from it. And in that instance, it is permitted on biblical grounds. The other instance, it goes back to that passage about the unequally yoked, and what if I'm a believer and now my wife's not, and she doesn't want to re remain with me any longer? We would call that abandonment. You know, if you change the equation and your spouse, your husband, your wife is like, I'm just not with you on this. I'm out of here or whatever. Then, as Paul would say in that passage, you are not bound, he says there. For the unbelieving husband, uh, that's not, anyway, it says it in that particular passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not bound, is not 
enslaved. And so marital infidelity, that's the first one. The second one is this idea of abandonment. Notice what we don't have in the scriptures. We don't have in the scriptures things like, well, we've grown apart. As we've gotten older, we've grown apart from one another, and so we've made the decision together to break our covenant. We don't have, well, we just don't love each other anymore. The love is gone. We don't have that in our scriptures. We definitely don't have, well, God just wants me to be happy. It's not in the scripture. Marriage is not based on happiness or love. Again, we hope it's there, but marriage is based on covenant. It's based on covenant. Now, I know that I've kind of flown through this. Are there complicated issues? There are. And the longer that I'm pastoring and people bring these sorts of things to me, I discover there's a myriad of complicated issues with this subject and with this topic. And I believe it's a mistake for the elder board as we're kind of trying to help people process these things to just say, well, two things, that's it, forget it. It's not one or the other, then get back in there and live with it. I think that's a mistake. And so I understand that there are complicated issues. What about things like physical abuse? What about things like extreme emotional abuse or mental abuse? What about destructive behaviors and addictions that are having an impact on the person and the children? I certainly think those are things that really need to be investigated and weighed and prayed through, counseled, and all of that that goes with it. But we certainly know we've grown apart is not biblical. We don't love each other anymore is not biblical, and so on. Our society has become very lax toward the covenant of marriage. The church, followers of Christ, our response shouldn't be to become lax as well. Our response should be to remain in the word of God. And how does God speak into that particular area in our lives? The people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem in Malachi's day, they were cheapening God's law. And they were about to experience the consequences for doing so. It would be a colossal mistake on our part to do the same. Do you agree with me on that? We can talk more about that at another point, but we're a little over. Let's, let's close out in prayer. And so, Lord, maybe some of us here today, this is something we've been dealing with. Maybe we've been thinking about getting a divorce. But I imagine most of us in this room, that's not our issue today. There's something else that you've been putting your finger on, something else you've been trying to speak into, something else you've been calling us out of this world and the way the world kind of deals with it and bringing us back to the truth of your word where you model for us how to deal with it. And so, Lord, with that, I pray that every one of us here, I pray for myself, Lord, that I would have a receptive heart to the leading of your spirit. That I would agree with you and not fight against you. Lord, I would acknowledge that you bring conviction for my good, not for my harm. And Lord, I pray that for every one of us today. In Jesus' name, amen.